Welcome to the PA Books podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. While the focus is always on Pennsylvania, topics like the Revolutionary War, the Battle of Gettysburg, the Industrial Revolution, the coal and steel industries, and authors like John Updike, David McCullough, and John Grogan have a universal appeal. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, the author of The Good Nurse, Charles Graber. Charles Graber, author of The Good Nurse. How did you find out about this story in the first place? Uh, it started as a, well, it came to me as a newspaper clipping. Uh, it was a small item. Uh, it was really hard to miss. Uh, serial killer attempts to donate kidney from jail. And I thought you don't often see those you know, words in combination. And uh, I just finished a, a, a piece in New York Magazine. And, um, and I happened to have just ripped it out and I stuck it in my wallet. Um, didn't know what I was going to do about it. I knew that uh, uh, Charles Cullen hadn't been speaking to anyone, that he wasn't going to speak to anyone. He'd been caught. They were calling him the angel of death. Um, uh, sounded maybe like a mercy killer, just a really, but whatever that might mean. Um, and, uh, and that he was attempting to, to donate a, a kidney to someone who was going to die without one. And uh, went to, to dinner with my, with my editor, because um, they buy you a, a dinner, you know, <laughs> if you finish a story, that's basically all you get. Anyway, um, story of journalism, and uh, and he he said, well, you know, what are you going to pursue next? And I didn't really necessarily want to get involved right away. I wanted to take some time, but I this was burning a hole in my pocket. I said, I don't have anything. He said, well, and I pulled out my wallet and said, actually, this is what I'm. I'm really. Uh, I was just suddenly struck by this story. I didn't understand. Uh, I didn't understand it. I didn't understand the dynamic of a killer nurse attempting to donate a kidney from from jail. Um, that seemed strange, and the fact that he wasn't then really didn't look like he was going to be allowed to do it uh, also seemed paradoxical. It seemed like the um, the the you know the, uh, the villains were the were the good guys in this part of the story, it, it, meaning the kidney donation I believed should go forward. Uh, but I also understand uh, Charles Cullen. You know, depending depends on what your definition of of punishment is, what punishment's for. Um, uh, it's often to take away anything that is the will of the punished, and this was his will. Will uh, the idea of a, you know the killer nurse playing God yet again, whether regardless of the consequences of, of those actions, just struck everyone as not being being punishment. Um, but knowing that he wasn't talking to anyone and that everyone had, had tried, I I sent him a letter, and uh, and a few weeks later uh, he responded, and I, I started the communication from there. Why did he talk to you? Uh, I think it was because of the kidney, uh, and also because I wasn't, I didn't go in uh, judgmentally. I had opinions, obviously, based on what I knew, but mostly I wanted, I wanted facts. I wanted to uh, hear him. And I was interested in this seemingly paradoxical uh, situation with, with the kidney. Um, and I have done kidney research before. Um, I, as a, as a child, I, I went door to door selling Tootsie Roll banks for the American Kidney Foundation. Uh, I published uh, co uh, published co-author on in papers uh, in Kidney International. Did studies on the 
dialyzer reuse. Um, my father is a professor of nephrology. Um, all these things obviously very much related. And, uh, and I'd, um, I'd approached medical school. I'd actually come to, uh, to Philadelphia and uh, commuted to, uh, to Bryn Mawr where I started after, after being a writer for, for some time to see if I could get a full science education as well. So I, I, I got a Bachelor of Science uh, as well and started at uh, Tulane uh, on MD MPH track. And um, all of those things added up to my genuine interest in the kidney, uh, in the donation going through, and in, facilita in facilitating it. I mean, I wanted him to be able to, I wanted that to happen. And I told him straight out, this is, you know, we're not friends. Um, there's a reason I'm talking to you, and it's not just because you're trying to donate a kidney, it's because you were a serial killer in jail trying to donate a kidney. And if this is really important to you, um, I know you want to talk all about the kidney, but if it's really important, I'm going to have to talk about the, the, the bad stuff too, because that's, 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 the, that's how this is going to work. And that started the relationship. What jail is he in? He's in Trenton, maximum security. He's in non-com, meaning he spends, he's separated from the general population, spends 23 hours a day in his cell. What was it like going in? I mean, what kind of clearance did you have to get? And what, what's the building like? What's the room like? Yeah, well, I mean, it, it started before he got to prison. Um, at the time, uh, when I, I sent the letter in 2005, uh, I started visiting in 2006 when he was in the Somerset County Jail. Um, and that was more of a, uh, it's a, you know, it's before a sentencing. So, uh, you know, lower uh, security and more direct access, just um, pretty straightforward. You know the, you know the guard, um, you know, the, it's, um, and then I was present during all of his sentencing and I would actually see him and his, his uh, team beforehand and afterwards to when it was possible. Um, and then once his sentencing was done and he was sent to Trenton, I, I, I went there. And that's a very different, I mean, the a degree of jail to prison is a degree of seriousness that's immediately apparent uh, even to the visitor. It's, you know, uh, high towers and razor wire and, uh, and uh, you know, no underwire bras, no, uh, you know, n n just, you know, full full pat-down wanding and uh, doors that close behind you before the next one opens. Uh, it, the, a visitor to, j to prison is, is treated uh, in some degree as if they are uh, you know, inmates of, of that prison and you definitely feel, uh, feel, the, feel the, the gravity of that very different situation. There it was, uh, you go to the end of the, the final room in the hall, there's a guard in a high window um, who gives you your phone, which is a, a cord that you plug in to where your, uh, your inmate is waiting uh, with his phone already plugged in, shackled to the floor on the other side of plexiglass. Um, so there's no, no physical communication uh, possible, no, you know, no physical contact, and everything's done through those little phones. How long could you talk to him in one sitting? An hour. It's, yeah, and just Tuesday and Thursday nights. When you met with him the first time, how'd you start it? Um, it, was, it was a little strange. As you might imagine, it was, uh, it was, we'd been communicating by letter enough um, that we felt that we knew each other to some degree. Um, I don't know that that's, that's true, but there was a sense of familiarity. And, and he had sort of a, uh, you know, kind of a, uh, almost, almost a coy sort of, uh, you know, response. Um, and I think we just started it. Acknowledging that this was a little, a little weird, 
and you know, and and talking as you do when you first see someone about you know the the, the weather, the, the the traffic on the way over, the in, the in this case, the how difficult was it getting in? You know, did you have okay okay time? You know, I asked him about what his conditions were like, how he was doing, um, and you know, just slowly building up a, a, a rapport. Like how that. many times did you? Meet with him. I, I tried to add that up. I didn't keep track of that between the letters and the and the visits and the and the calls and all that. The um, dozens, um, but I don't I don't know how how many times we we communicated exactly. Were you allowed to ask anything you wanted? Or were there any? Well, um, there were. I mean, the the jail or prison didn't have any boundaries. Uh, I, I mean, I imagine one could find them, but they, certainly they would have been outside of anything. I I be talking about um, Charlie Cullen has has boundaries he'll shut down he doesn't really necessarily want to um, if I were to was ever too aggressive um, or too aggressive for too long um, he would he would not see any reason to continue that conversation um, he'd sort of disappear um, and so we had to proceed uh, carefully some some you know fairly organically but but carefully, and a lot of what I did is, is listen. A lot of what I learned um, was not about the murders, uh, which had been gone into in, in detail by, by many by detectives before me, um, but more about his life outside of that, his life uh, beforehand, uh, his feelings on, on various topics, trying to uh, understand him in the round, as he to, to put in, him in some context, and in those contexts. Um, he actually seems, he's, he's actually um, uh, self-deprecating, sardonic, uh, uh, at, at times uh, funny, witty, smart person. Um, and again, I, you know, but you know, he, he was never, he's not in jail because of, of his sense of humor. So that's, you know, that's, when I say that, it's not, I'm not trying to make some average of the man. And I've told him, I've, I told him, him the same. I'm not your karmic accountant. Um, so you know when I when I say this, um, it, it's it's I say it partially because you wouldn't expect that, and and yet it was true. Um, but I don't mean for that in any way to to lessen what he did. It depends on who you're speaking to, and you know it's obviously at the end of the day we're talking about murder. We're talking about people losing, uh, you know, wives and mothers and daughters, and sons, and uh, and 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 his personality doesn't really figure into that. Were you allowed to record the conversations, or did you have to write things down? I could write things down in the beginning. Um, for the most part, I had to, uh, after a conversation, just go uh, regurgitate the, uh, you know, everything I, I, I had into a into a recorder as quickly as possible. Um, just going verbatim, walking in circles, um, and that was, um, you know. It was. It's difficult because uh, you know you you can hold, I can hold information that way very well, um, but you reach a, a point and you have if you have something that you really really want you almost want to stand up and go away at that moment so that you really have that that thing and of course you can't quite do that and that makes you only semi present for uh, for the next fifteen minutes or something as you try to you know keep one hand on it. Were you not allowed to take notes or did it interrupt what, kind of no, interrupt no, the flow? No. Once we were, once we got to prison. Um, um, then you, then you couldn't bring anything in, and that was the issue. I mean, I, you know, I wasn't going to mess with them. At first, I thought, oh, I should, you know, get just a pencil lead and stick it under my fingernail, and I can bring it out and just write three, you know, just three, 
you know, just, I, I don't know. I was trying to think of ways you could do that. And in the end, that would have obviously been a, first of all, a violation of prison rules, which is not something I was, you know, I told you it was an intimidating um, you know, environment to begin with. Um, and, and also uh, uh, completely unnecessary. The, the good thing about the, it's the isolation of that prison. You know, I, I developed this, this ritual uh, because, you, because you go at night, you're as alone, um, you know, take the train to the, um, to the local train, you know, walk across the, 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 the uh, it's not an interstate, but it's a you know, six lane road or something, you know, from the McDonald's um, through this very dark area of town where you're, uh, and then th through an abandoned corridor topped with razor wire, um, it's, it's actually a good place to talk to yourself and, uh, and, and relive a conversation out loud. How often, or what was it like when you when you really got into it and you felt like we are really into it now? I'm really getting great stuff. Yeah, that sent electricity right through me when I knew I had a piece, you know, a, a piece that I could use, a piece that uh, fit another piece that I had from from somewhere else. Um, because once I started talking to Charlie Cullen, you know, at the end of the day, he's really just the context uh, for for this larger story. Um, and once I started talking to him, um, it was much easier to talk to the people around him, um, the other people uh, involved with uh, with, you know, with his with his capture, um, and involved with his life, and hearing elements of his thinking and his his uh, stories, and knowing how they dovetailed with the history I discovered and the larger story I was uncovering, those building blocks falling into place was, I mean, it, it was there's just electricity, and you can't uh, you can't wait to. Um, you know, to, to put them in order and, and set it right, and and then I you could. It was very easy to write on the back of that um, what I produced in order to produce that book. You know, you've got there. It's it's. I was surprised what it looks like in, in print. Printed you know, printed out. It's it's like that. But what I what I wrote to get that was you know something that would look like this. Not to mention the, the drafts. So it's it's not a matter of you know the the. Enthusiasm and and sincerity of of, uh, of finding that moment can also lead you to uh, uh, many editing hours uh, later. So, um, so that that was a uh, those are memorable moments. I, those uh, those are in my my head still. Did you ever th think you figured him out? Like you could look into all your conversations with him in your notes and say, okay, I understand how he went from what he was to what he did. Yep, I did. I thought that, uh, and then I would. Sometime later, think that again, about uh, in a different way, and then again. And I don't know that that means that any of those moments were not right. That I didn't. I, but I think what it taught me or reminded me uh, was that uh, people are complicated. We're all complicated. Um, he's not a simple monster. He's not. Um, a, he's a. He's a man who made uh, uh, bad choices. Uh, He's a product of his environment, a product of his, of his uh, genetics, product of everything else, but a, and a, but a product of his own doing as well. And that um, many, many truths uh, can coexist uh, about him and in his own head, seemingly paradoxical ones. Um, and learning that, that was actually, a, 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 that was the real key. When you were talking to him, did, did it seem like he was crazy? No, not usually. Um, only there were moments uh, Pushing him too hard on something he didn't want to talk about uh, when he would physically sag, um, one eye would drift, um, and his voice would change, and I would see him start to go, and I thought, this is, 
not something you see people that you uh, normally talk to do. Um, uh, there was circular thinking uh, and and leaps of, of justification. You know, his, his absolute incredulity that a Catholic hospital, would, of all places, would would catch him in his words and let him go. Um, the incredulity, the incredulous part to him, was not that he had been murdering patients as a nurse, but that a Catholic hospital of all places would catch him and let him go. Um, th that thinking also, uh, that wasn't quite right. But I didn't. But in terms of crazy, true um, madness, I'm not a psychiatrist. I, but my sense of that was was no. Probably the most irrational I've, I've seen him was uh, in Allentown during his <coughs> his, um, his his sentencing. Uh, where he asked the judge to recuse himself. He was very upset that the judge had not stood down. And so he decided to say that uh, over and over again during the entirety of the proceedings while, while, the, while the judge spoke, while the, uh, while the family members of the victims attempted to you know, read poems about their, their lost loved ones and show pictures, um, just repeating it very loudly, like, almost like row, row, row your boat. Um, uh, which was just a crazy-making ex experience. That combined with the, the grief and the and the and the ceremony of the of the court, and they had to bind him. Uh, you know, they first tried to gag him with a towel, and when and then the towel loosened up, and so they had to retighten it. And when that wouldn't work, they had to they wrapped it. And they came up with a big thing of duct tape, um, wrapped him around that, and then a spit mask. And it was it was just the um, uh, it was it was. Theater, and it was, but it was most. It was just. It was. It was horrifying. It was. You know, that that moment was an electric moment of insight into this other guy who was not calmly recounting what he wanted to in a controlled environment from the other side of of, of glass, um, knowing that he was going back to his cell, knowing that it was just his words, and that he had. He, this was Charlie Cullen feeling a lack of control, and this is what he did. And in the hospital, Charlie Cullen, feeling a lack of control in his life, um, did much worse. Was that before you did any of your interviews with him, or had you already started? Doing oh no, I'd been speaking to him steadily uh, right through that. Um, that was that was uh, that was the last sentencing that he that he had. Um, he'd already been sentenced in New Jersey, um, and I'd been speaking to him uh, well before before that, and that was before he went to prison. We haven't really talked specifically about what he did, and we should probably no, talk should, about right. that. Well, first, a little background: where did he grow up? Uh, right, he's he's from um, he's from East Orange, um, New Jersey, uh, the youngest of of nine, uh, a, a much younger than his his older siblings. Uh, his father died soon after his birth. Um, grew up, raised mostly by his his mother and uh, the sisters that that remained. Um, he describes his childhood, described it to me as miserable, uh, described it to many other people as miserable and very dark. It's almost, uh, it evokes almost a basement uh, existence, the, w the, way, uh, uh, the way the way he, he speaks of it, um, to the extent that he will, he will speak of it. Um, his mother died when he was uh, 16. He'd already attempted suicide uh, uh, about 10 years before uh, with a, uh, a chemistry set one of those kids' chemistry sets, um, which didn't make him die, but made him sick. Um, and I think, in a way, sick sick maybe worked for him uh, as well, and that factors into his life later. But um, he went to the Navy. Um, he, he didn't feel safe in that house with his, with his mother there. He had uh, brothers um, 
that he, he didn't trust in the House, strange people. Um, entered the Navy thinking that would be an improvement. Went into electronics, submarines, uh, nuclear subs. Uh, he's uh, involved with uh, the, the nuclear warheads on, in, those, in those subs. Uh, trained well, did well, liked the schooling, didn't like the experience of being a, a submariner or, or, uh, or, or electronics or the military discipline. He, I mean, this was a situation where he was not in control um, and there was nothing he could do. Um, finally, got out of the Navy and, and, uh, and entered, entered nursing almost, uh, almost, and it was suddenly, and his life uh, turned at that moment. It was a home almost, almost immediately. He was class president. Yeah, that's right, right away. Um, yeah, he was, he, was, uh, he was beloved. He gets along very well with, with women. He, his primary relationships are with women, usually, usually with, with just you know, one at a, a time, friendships. Um, he's, a, he's a safe seeming person. He's sort of soft and non-threatening, not an outwardly aggressive person. Um, and yeah, he, was, he was successful. He graduated and got a job. He got married? He got married in right in between there. Um, uh, had, had some kids uh, and uh, started uh, in, uh, in 1987 uh, on the burn, in the burn service in Livingston, New Jersey at St. Barnabas Medical Center and uh, started killing people almost uh, right away. You, you talk about some uh, problems that showed up in his marriage with his, uh, he went for a walk or the family dog disappeared and he didn't seem to care and he went for a walk and left the baby at home. Yeah, there were a number of incidents uh, uh, in, the, in, the, in the marriage uh, that in retrospect seem like great big warning signs. It's very difficult in a, in a, to, I, would, I wouldn't want to judge other people's marriages, especially not from one perspective, um, you know, especially after a, 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 a divorce that was, uh, I think, you know, contentious at, at best. Uh, Had he done any killing at that point? Not that I know of. Um, not that he's certainly ever spoken of. He has told others, uh, uh, several other people that, uh, that were close to him, uh, that he had spiked his sister's, well, his, his sister had left the house, um, but her live-in boyfriend had stayed. Um, and he didn't like that. And I, I think that was a very uncomfortable relationship, a very an abusive relationship. And uh, I, he told several people that he spiked that man's drink with, uh, with lighter fluid. Um, but in terms of uh, murder, not, not, not that we know of. He, uh, at one point, was saying that a hospital killed his mother? Yeah, it was, it was the, um, his, he was very close to his mother, and, uh, and she died in a, in a car accident with his, his sister at the wheel. She had a, a seizure, um, and he wasn't told right away and went to the hospital, um, and the hospital uh, didn't tell him how bad, uh, how, how bad it was, didn't say that his mother was actually already, already gone, and uh, told him the body was, uh, when he came back later, told him the body was already gone, which he, he said he believed was not. Um, and uh, and he, he was upset with the hospital. He, uh, he didn't, didn't blame her for, not blame them for her death, uh, but he was, he was very upset with, uh, with, with the way they treated him, and I you know, I, I'm not again. I'm not a psychiatrist, and I'm not, um, and and things don't always fit into neat patterns the way you imagine. You know, some serial killer story on, you know, on, on TV. But um, he did 
uh, when he got out of the Navy, go to nursing school at that hospital where his mother's body had been taken from him. Where was that? That was Morningside in New Jersey. And St. Barnabas in New Jersey, what was his job there? He was a burn nurse. Uh, he started uh, cleaning patients, uh, which is a, it was the burn, burn units in the 80s were, they, they, were, they were scream wards, essentially. Um, uh, they didn't really have the anti-anxiety drugs that, we, that are used today. The, the pain meds were fairly crude, uh, relatively speaking, and, and uh, burns, especially second degree burns. Um, where the nerves are still alive, but the but the, the but the skin is cooked, are extremely painful, and his job was an almost unimaginable job. Uh, I've spent some time on in, on a burn unit uh, in researching this this book. I spent two weeks of uh, overnights, and that's a more a more a modern day burn unit. So, but uh, still uh, unimaginably uh, difficult. Uh, he, his job was to debride, uh, to uh, to clean patients, essentially to remove. Uh, that uh, those dead layers of, of skin, which involves a, a, essentially a wire brush and a, uh, uh, a metal gurney, it's just not. I mean, it's not pleasant. You, one, if you know, there's a, a certain narrative here that uh, is more comprehensible, um, is, is, or it's not unimaginable, which is um, compassion being taken too far, uh, compassion becoming compulsion. Did he do some mercy killing? Um, you know, it really depends on, he, was he asked by any of his patients to assist in their suicide? No, not that I know of. Um, he, uh, what he did had to do with him. What he did was, 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 was for him. And that's the ultimate tyranny, obviously, is, is you know, exercising control over someone, else's, over someone else's life. And not everyone he killed was um, in any way, uh, you know, on their, on their last legs and, you know, it, it, it was many patients were recovering, and many patients at that first hospital, he don't he he wouldn't know who they were, um, because he'd spiked bags of saline, in the storeroom, with insulin, not even knowing where they where they'd go. They would end up you know when nurses would grab them and just go out like live grenades. Um, so that's any notion of of it being mercy killing is is uh, that's a misnomer. The angel of death thing that he was dubbed by the media uh, very very quickly. This, it was, you know, it was a headline, but it was wasn't accurate. So he had a lot of time on the job where no one was looking over his shoulder, and he could operate unsupervised. I mean, there's part one of the stories here. Nurses are really the hero of this book. Um, it's there happens to be one bad nurse or one nurse that um, was seen as good at times, uh, but people don't look didn't, don't realize that there's a person inside the uniform, and he was he was missed. Um, but the book really, the good nurse, really refers to. Uh, all the other nurses, and it's dedicated to them, um, you know, to those who spend their lives caring for ours. Um, but during that period of time, uh, it was a terrible nursing shortage. Um, nurses are, are often overworked, and that's uh, part of the issue, which we can get into later in terms of you know, the reporting of errors, um, uh, accurate and transparent reporting of nursing errors, um, which is so important. Um, we have to remember that nursing errors can sometimes result from a nurse being uh, you know, from a, from from understaffing, from uh, from management decisions, from a nurse being uh, overworked, or you know, just uh, human error is, is very possible. But he was, you know, he was you know, often working alone. One of the early um, 
mistakes or, or murders that had happened, uh, you, you say here the first assumption was that a mistake had been made. A nurse misread a doctor's order, for instance, or a mislabeled vial. Such mistakes happen in hospitals all the time. Right. D did doing this book make you a little apprehensive about being treated in hospitals? <laughs> no. <laughs> Actually, um, not, a, not at all. I, uh, you know, I, I grew up in nursing stations. Was my father worked all the time. Um, and uh, that's, that's how I saw him. I went on rounds with him sometimes. Sometimes I just would hang out with the nurses. Um, I had a sense of, of, of nurses. I had a sense of, of what happens in the, in the hospital. Um, I didn't see mistakes happening all the time or, or the like. But, but the fact is that uh, uh, there are humans uh, you know, working with other humans uh, in a highly pressured situation um, where mistakes can be critical. And statistically, they do. They they occur. It's doesn't. You don't need to assume malice. Um, I, I think you should. Always, I mean, ideally, you know, you don't want to end up in a hospital, but but nobody does. I mean, you know, um, and yet we all we all do. We uh, most of us start there too. Um, so, you know, it's it's. I think being aware that you're dealing with with people, um, and that you're also a person and part of this process. Um, you know, to the extent that you could be helpful and not. Uh, you know, constantly tripping it up. I think it's it, it, it is a very good idea to uh, to pay attention to the extent that you can at every hand on on deck in those sorts of situations. We, he was at St. Barnabas. Oh, where is St. Barnabas? Uh, Livingston, New Jersey. New Jersey. Uh, he was there for six years. Uh, any idea when he started killing people, and how long it took? Yeah, the but, uh, 1987 is when he started, and uh, 1987 is when he said he. he he killed his first patient. They haven't identified that that patient. Uh, he later told detectives in Essex County uh, that he'd been uh, spiking saline bags um, and delivering insulin to patients that that weren't prescribed it. Uh, sometimes two or three times a week uh, for for stretches of, of, of long for long stretches during that period, and none of them are accounted for. They're really very poor. They're, it's you know it's a it's a long time ago. Um, and the records are have not been, uh, you know, they're they're mostly destroyed. Um, I have some; uh, those are very difficult to to find. Most of them just saved by mistake uh, somewhere else. Um, and the evidence there was they they found those bags of spike those spiked bags of saline. Um, they looked at them under the microscope. They saw that there had been pinpricks. Um, mm -hmm. They believed internally. The, uh, they investigated internally and uh, under the strong belief that somebody had been doing this on purpose. Um, they narrowed it down to uh, Charlie Cullen as being their main suspect. Um, and then what? Well, there's no smoking gun. Uh, he wasn't ever caught red-handed. Uh, eventually he was removed from the schedule and eventually he, he worked somewhere else. Um, but even those bags uh, of evidence you know, which he says would have his fingerprints all over them. Um, he says he didn't wear gloves. Um, uh, th those have, have been destroyed too, or they're missing. Part of this book is that he worked in nine different hospitals mm. and a nursing home over 16 years. Right. And if you count six years at the first place, that's, that's five nine, years at the first, yeah. nine places in 10 years or so. Uh, right. He, he seemed to never have trouble getting a job after he was let go or fired or... Right. From the previous one, right, the nursing shortage of that of that period contributed mightily to that. 
Um, I've had a, a, a senior uh, nurse, uh, now an academic, but a, a nurse's advocate say that um, uh, that they used to sometimes joke that you know any any warm body uh, could could get hired at that period, and that was not meant as in any way to be rude to her peers. She was just saying that they was they were that short staffed. Um, you know, hospital business was booming, um, and you know, proliferating into all sorts of different specialty centers and, and ambulatory um, uh, you know wings, and um, and, uh, and they just they were just under understaffed, but also. Uh, he didn't have anything on his record um, for for years until the uh, year before he, he just months before he left um, uh, nursing for, or before he was caught uh, in his last job in, in, in Pennsylvania and he simply crossed the state line. Oh, what were the circumstances of him leaving his first job, St. Barnabas? Uh, there, it's interestingly enough there there were no circumstances. That's the the, the funny thing about it. He was. Um, Simply taken off the schedule, and so um, he called it being fired. Um, there's no distinct record of him being formally fired. Um, he was let go, which I guess is a euphemism for fired. It's, um, but um, he he was forced to find some employment just down the down the road, and um, and that's the story. That's really the story of. Of, of Charlie Collins. And the, the mysterious death stopped as soon as he left that right. hospital? Right. Um, they did. Now, the, trying to actually make cause and effect of that, uh, try, trying to make a case out of that, um, I don't know if that would, would have been possible or not. Um, you know, also, he was a, a floater. He was so good at filling in um, at other hospitals, uh, I mean, at, at, for other people's shifts, which is one of the reasons he was a very popular uh, nurse. Um, uh, he he was always willing to take, you know, weekends and holidays and and uh, and liked the night shift, um, and um, and as a result he he would hop all over the place, which made really trying to tie um, his schedule and his movements uh, to to what was happening on a you know in a, in a crowded hospital where a lot of you know there were a lot of people, a lot of sick people, a lot of a lot of crises um, was was nearly impossible. You say in here, uh, Nurse Cullen appeared to be an ideal hire. His fellow mm. nurses considered him a gift from the scheduling gods, a hire almost too good to be true. And that uh, he got, that was attributed with having uh, very good nursing skills. Yeah, he, um, he, he had uh, all the certifications. Uh, he uh, acquired a lot of experience. He was, uh, he was really good at the technical details, um, as he had been. Uh, working with electronics in the Navy, uh, he and and again it was very simple to schedule. Um, so you know it was uh, walking in. You you'd probably hire Charles Cullen too, not not knowing why you shouldn't. Uh, you mentioned a, a suicide attempts. He had a lot of suicide attempts in his life. Yeah, he did, over and over again. Uh, he recounts some twenty. I can't account for all those, uh, but. He was definitely depressed his entire life. Uh, obviously, none of those suicide attempts were was successful, um, which tells you, I think, a lot about Charlie Cullen and a lot about the nature of those of those uh, attempts. They're not really attempts; they're uh, gestures. And uh, because he definitely definitely knew how to kill people, uh, there's no question about that. Um, you know, so the fact that he couldn't kill himself, there's a a thought, um, not original to me, that uh, uh, 
murder for Charlie Cullen, well, you know, first of all, suicide um, was a, is a, a sin. He was raised Catholic and he was taught suicide was a, a sin by the nuns. Um, and one could look at murder as being a sort of suicide by proxy. Not that murder isn't also a sin, but um, that's another matter. If, if I remember it correctly, he went into a, a psychiatric ward as a patient after he tried to commit suicide, mm -hmm. and, and then he was hired immediately out of there to another hospital. Yeah, he had a few incidents like that where, in one case, in fact, he received the call to go back on shift while in the psychiatric unit, uh, which he'd been in for, for some months. Um, uh, he, he also, uh, in several, several times, actually was wheeled into his own emergency room or the emergency room of the hospital that he was working in, uh, which didn't help his, his you know, the, the way he was looked at at that hospital very much. Uh, or in other cases was then wheeled into that same emergency room after he'd been removed from that hospital or, uh, or after he'd received a restraining order because he'd been stalking a coworker at that hospital. So uh, he was, and he was, he, he, he told me those stories and they were, um, they were funny stories, the way he told them. I mean, they're the sort of stories if you heard them in a at a uh, in a bar, uh, and some some guy saying you wouldn't believe the stupid thing I did, you know, and and you think you know it all turned out okay. You think you know it's just self self deprecating self humor, um, you know. It seems seems like insight, and you sort of think here's a guy that's willing to, you know, to take a knock at himself and, and open himself up, and yeah, he's fallen down, but you know we. But it keeps getting getting back up, and you know, it's it, it. They were funny, but they're not funny, of course, in in the fuller fuller context context. Did you interview any hospital administrators over this? Go back to any of the people who hired him and say, what were you thinking? Right, I didn't speak to any hospital administrators, or rather, they wouldn't speak to me, um, which I understand. None of them. Um, they were all contacted or each hospital was was contacted um, there was a gag order out also uh, a lot of hospitals the, the all, all of the institutions involved uh, were uh, subjected to lawsuits by the families of victims following uh, following Cullen's sentencing and so uh, many of them would have been unable to speak uh, even even if they they wanted to you you write that a couple of places gave him either a neutral reference or just the dates that he was there or one wrote him a letter saying good luck Right, um, the the neutral references uh, that he received. Sometimes he he received positive references. What he never received were negative references. Um, even at places where you'd think uh, after incidents that you'd think would would merit a, a negative reference. But neutral references are sort of corporate policy. Um, they were certainly corporate policy in most of the these hospitals, which are corporations um, at that time. Um, they're, they're standard corporate policy. Um, you don't want to be libelous towards an employee. You don't want to uh, sort of to unfairly blacklist employees. So that's, that was actually meant as a, uh, in order to protect both the institution and, and the individual. Um, but in something where it's literally life and death, uh, competence is life and death, um, obviously it, it, that policy is, is neutral references are not neutral uh, in their effect. Did you talk to any co-workers uh, at any of the hospitals and yeah. anybody say, well, everybody knew he was killing people? No, nobody said that. Um, some people in retrospect uh, raised some significant red flags, but in retrospect, of course, uh, you know, it's, it, 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 that doesn't really uh, count. There were people, 
uh, over and over again at the time, uh, you, if you look through his history, uh, who said, uh, he reported him, thought, said this guy's not, not right. Uh, sometimes administrators, sometimes you know, supervisors, uh, sometimes coworkers, and sometimes patients um, who complained. Uh, but his his behavior was not uh, it, it was it was really uneven it, when when things were when things were okay in his personal life uh, when he felt that he had control over um, over the aspects of, of his outside life uh, he didn't take it out on, um, on in the one arena in which he did have control in the hospital but uh, then when things fell apart uh, so did he you write about one. Um Larry Dean's next call was to the Warren County prosecutor. He said his mother had been murdered and he told them who had done it. Were there other times the cops were called in? Yeah. Uh, that happened over and over again. Um, I want to say three times at least. Um, he actually, uh, later in, 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 in that chapter, he, he goes through a lie detector test on that and passes. Um, and he did inject. Uh, Mrs. Dean uh, directed her, injected her in the uh, in the thigh, and uh, and she died the next day. Um, it was very suspicious, but um, it, what was really strange about that one was that they did an autopsy on Mrs. Dean, and they tested her for a uh, hundred different things, hundred different drugs. Uh, the only drug they didn't test her for was digoxin, which is the one drug that. Charlie Cullen used and a drug that he'd used over and over again. I, I, that, uh, that was very confounding to Larry Dean, who, uh, who himself has passed away, but uh, to the, the day of his death kept uh, uh, tissue samples, his mother's tissue samples, in his, in his freezer, thinking he was going to, going to figure this out and 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 get Cullen. Oh, we haven't yet gotten to the Pennsylvania connection oh, right. here, and there were a few Pennsylvania hospitals. There were. For, yeah. uh, you want to talk about those? Sure, yeah. Uh, Liberty Nursing Home, uh, Lehigh Valley um, Hospital, Easton, uh, and St. Luke's Hospital. Um, and uh, he'd, he'd crossed the river from New Jersey, being from New Jersey, um, partially thinking he'd burned the bridge. Uh, not really being sure. He hadn't actually burned a bridge, but he felt like maybe he pushed it a bit too far and uh, crossed, the, crossed the border and had a, essentially a, a clean start. Because um, he had to get a new nursing license for Pennsylvania? Right. And uh, not that he actually had anything on his New Jersey nursing license, but it certainly seemed to him that he should at that point. Um, and in, in fact, he should have at that point. Um, and once in Pennsylvania, of course, uh, the pattern began again. Um, and uh, yeah, he did that from 98 to uh, 2002. And the one hospital was at St. Luke's said, uh, essentially, we know you're doing this, but if you agree to quit, we'll look the other way. Well, they, what's happened at St. Luke's, uh, they found that somebody was stashing meds. He was killing people at St. Luke's. Uh, he, he was. Uh, and they found that somebody was stashing meds in the uh, the sharps bin in the medical closet, um, you know, where they you discard a, uh, needles. Um, a nurse opened up the, the the bin and discovered it was absolutely full. And when they dumped it out, they discovered it wasn't just full of unused drugs, like uh, because Cullen it was very passive aggressive, was wasting their money essentially is what he was trying to do, sort of acting out. Uh, but it was also uh, also contained vials 
of drugs that had been used that weren't prescribed, including a, a, a deadly paralytic uh, called vecuronium, which is a, and what was really terrifying about that, aside from the fact that it was a deadly paralytic that uh, had not been prescribed to anyone on, on, the, on the unit, and that that would be a, obviously a horrific drug to receive, um, particularly if it wasn't prescribed, but in any, any doses, you know, there are doses many, you know, dozens of times uh, higher than you would ever, ever uh, administer therapeutically. Uh, but it's not a drug that you could dump out. This is a drug that needs to be reconstituted. It's a, it's a glass ampule with a rubber stopper that's sealed to it. And in order to empty one of these little things out, you have to get a syringe, open it, fill it with saline, inject through the stopper, shake it up, sort of like reconstituting Kool-Aid, withdraw it, and then, well, what are you going to do with it? Now, to do that, it's a very, it's, that's labor-intensive. It's not, if you're throwing away these other drugs, I mean, that's, you're, you're, there's no reason that you wouldn't be throwing away this drug if it was all one pack. So the suspicion, of course, was, uh, well, the fear was that he was using it on the unit uh, to kill patients would be the ultimate uh, fear. And, in fact, he was. And uh, it happened again uh, and again, and they uh, figured out that it was him. They were watching that closet. Um, outside counsel came in uh, in the middle of his shift, and they sat him down, and uh, uh, he, was, uh, he was allowed to, um, uh, to, uh, to, to, to quit, to uh, blocking the word suddenly. <laughs> He was, he was uh, uh, allowed to uh, resign his post uh, and receive neutral references as he, as he moved on. Why did he do that? Uh, I'm very careful in this book not to speculate, as you can, you can imagine. I mean, this is, uh, this is serious stuff. Um, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a journalist. I've been a journalist for 20 years. I, uh, I couldn't, uh, I, didn't, I didn't think it was necessary to speculate. What I wanted to do was lay the facts out as best as I could um, in a manner that uh, was the most readable because people find that it's something that they could sort of rip through or, or, and consult the end notes, but uh, it's, it moves, even though it has a lot of moving parts to the story and so long, um, so that the reader, so that I, you, could decide for ourselves what would I have known at that moment, what would I have done. Um, I can tell you the consequences of moving him on with, with neutral and, and giving him neutral references. Um, certainly, uh, it was not, there was no public uh, admission at that point um, uh, that anything had gone wrong on that unit and that they had a, a nurse that had done anything wrong. Um, and uh, another consequence, of course, was that Charles Cullen uh, went down the road and got another job and started killing people. Um, I, I have to say that at St. Luke's, they did. Um, two things happened on the back of that. Um, one of the nurses that worked with, with, uh, with Cullen, you were asking about uh, nurses that had a strong reaction. One of those nurses that worked with Charles Cullen had a very strong reaction to that and felt that um, simply removing him and then she waited for the splash. You know, she waited for, for what the, something to happen next and nothing happened. And uh, she was very frustrated by that, couldn't get any, any further action from her superiors. Um, was told that there was the investigation was closed, um, and so she took it upon herself, and she went through personal contacts uh, to the uh, to the DA. So uh, she initiated a police investigation at St. Luke's, uh, and uh, the following week, 
uh, St. Luke's did write a letter to the state nursing board um, detailing what, what that nurse, Pat Medigan, um, what she had already told the, the district attorney. When did the police start circling? Yeah, well, this investigation that we're talking about right now, um, they were circling. Um, there was a full investigation of many months. This was uh, the St. Luke's. This is the St. Luke's. Uh -huh. Yeah, and um, and eventually it was closed. They uh, uh, couldn't find sufficient evidence, um, which frustrated, uh, still frustrates uh, a large number of people. Um, but the police really closed in on him for the last time uh, in Somerset County at, at Somerset Medical Center, New Jersey. In New Jersey, he'd gone back across the border because he had burned his bridge there. Well, n not he didn't test it. He just went back across the border. Um, so hospitals didn't talk among themselves and say, mm, don't hire this guy. Well, um, at St. Luke's, uh, the administrators and the outside counsel that was brought in uh, did make phone calls. In the, it was three months before, uh, before the, the, their, one of their nurses went to the, the DA and bef before they, their subsequent letter to the nursing board. Uh, and they did call other hospitals. Uh, uh, they maintained that it was to, to, to learn more about Charles, nurse Charles Cullen, um, but what's also clear is that they also uh, told those hospitals that Charles Cullen was considered a do not rehire, um, and which is to say that they alerted some hospitals uh, of Charles Cullen's, uh, of something more than neutral references. Um, and what was frustrating, of course, uh, is that they didn't tell everybody that. And the uh, and Somerset Medical Center uh, didn't know that, and uh, and so when he started working there and started killing their patients, um, they had at that point no no sense of his of his background. When was the investigation that finally nabbed him? Yeah, it, he finally uh, at Somerset in 2002. They they finally uh, they noticed that they were having clusters of patients. Uh, one, then another, that became instant diabetics, uh, and then others that were having digoxin overdoses, uh, all sort of on the same shift, uh, different different units, but the same problem. And uh, and they became uh, concerned, but it started an internal investigation. It took it took them months and months to uh, to get around to to contacting uh, anyone outside intentionally. They eventually contacted. Uh, one of the pharmacy uh, staff contacted New Jersey Poison Control uh, for help with the math, trying to figure out for that internal investigation when a patient would be needed to be, receive a certain amount of a drug, uh, or what time that injection would, would, would go, and how much they would have been, been given. Um, and uh, that call reached uh, uh, Dr. Stephen Marcus and Dr. Bruce Rock at the New Jersey Poison Control, and they uh, threw up the red flags and said, no, you've got, you, it looks like you've got a malefactor here. You've got somebody doing this, um, and you need to go to the authorities. It's a police matter, and you need to contact the Department of Health right away, and if you don't, uh, we will, and this is all on tape. Um, there was a, the, the <laughs> cut to a few months later, the police are finally uh, involved, and they're um, uh, two former Newark homicide detectives uh, that Relocated to Summer, Somerville, uh, Somerset County, and uh, you know who were veterans in Newark when Newark was was the murder capital of the, of, of the U.S., um, where everything started with drugs and ended with a gun. And this couldn't have, this was Greek to them, and that's actually literally what they what they said. Um, and they 
zeroed in on, on Charles Cullen fairly quickly, even though he wasn't officially a suspect of the hospital, and, and, they, they, and they, they, they were told that. Um, and he was just another one of, one of their nurses. Um, they did get his name from them, uh, but out of context. It was a very strange circumstance. So they were on him quite quickly, but again, with no evidence, no way of, of cracking it. And that's really where um, his, uh, you know, even building a circumstantial case against him at that point was uh, uh, probably going to be another act of, of futility, uh, as it had been at, over and over again for 16 years. Uh, but Charlie Cullen had a best friend there, a nurse named Amy, uh, and she was his biggest protector. She saw him as a, as a, a, a shy and vulnerable type of person, the kind of person that she, she could protect. And um, when confronted with, uh, with, with Cullen's drug orders by one of the detectives, um, she questioned what exactly her best friend had been, had been doing. And she res really wrestled with, with this question. Um, was, you know, because she was being asked at that point to become a confidential informant and uh, to bring Cullen in and to get him, help get him con to confess. And she had to ask herself, you know, first of all, did, did she have no radar for this sort of thing? Was she uh, best friends with uh, a serial killer, really? Uh, to what extent was she even culpable? Um, you know, had, had she facilitated uh, those, those deaths? To, had he killed her patients? Were, 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 was her, you know, her care uh, giving compromised? Um, and on the other hand, <clears throat> what if she's wrong? What if she's trying to set up her best friend? What kind of a friend is that? She was a fiercely loyal person. You know, what if she was uh, setting up an, an innocent man? Um, and she feared for her family. She had two, two little girls. Um, she, didn't know, she didn't know what would happen. She feared for her job. Uh, and, she, and the question became whether she would put it all on the line uh, in order to, to, to try and stop Charlie. And ultimately, it came down to, um, her, asking, to her answering uh, her need to answer this question for herself. Um, and that was really that was really her journey. So she wore a wire. Eventually, yes, yeah, she wore a wire. She made a lot of recorded calls, uh, helped interpret some of the paperwork, and ultimately uh, wore a wire. Uh, asked to meet him at a restaurant. Um, sat him down. Um, wore a wire, um, and uh, and it was sort of a push pull at that point. She was telling him, "I love you. I know you. I'm not stupid." You're not stupid, and this looks bad. Tell me. And he, he didn't tell her at that point. He started to break down. He started to go away. Um, it wasn't a, it, it just, it, it wasn't a, a, an emotional breakdown where he suddenly became. It, it was more a, a, an emotional withdrawal. Um, and uh, and she got another, another, another chance to, 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 to talk to him and to bring him to a, a place. Did um, he say anything? While he was wired, or oh, yeah. that was damning. Yeah, well, yeah. That, I mean, that, as you know, I mean, there's a, a long section on on that uh, in the book because it's really uh, the the context. Could you hear the? Re did you listen to the recordings? Yeah. Um, yeah, that's all straight transcript, um, except where I, I note in the back that it's it's been um, it's been cut because it's long. You wouldn't want to read all the ums and, and uh, as I did. <laughs> I actually was fascinated with by every little beat and the music of it, and I mean it was chilling. Um, but uh, I, I realized that no reader has 
I spent six years on this. The reader maybe spends a weekend or a week or whatever it is. Um, I think unless you've spent six years, you don't want to hear every, 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 every beat. Um, so Charlie, is uh, he ultimately confessed? Yeah. Um, he was given a chance to turn this story around, um, to, to tell a version of this, that, um, to own it. And he sat for seven hours and uh, told a, a almost seemingly rehearsed, uh, somewhat rambling, um, but not at all reticent uh, tale. Uh, you know, as the detectives continued to flip the cassette tapes, you know, just you know, because it went all night. Um, and, and this was after, he'd already refused to confess. He'd, he'd, he'd stopped, it was, it was done. So this was a, a Hail Mary that came really at the, at the last second. Um, and in that confession, he, he said that he could account for 40 people, um, uh, but there were large tracts of his life uh, that he, uh, they described as, as being uh, in a fog and that he couldn't account for. Um, and experts that I've spoken to with, with, that are very intimate with, with this case uh, say that it's most probable that his 40 victim's estimate was wrong by a factor of eight. So they put it between three and four hundred more probably, but we'll, we'll never know. We're just about out of time, but have you been in touch with him since the book came out and has he read it? I don't know. I haven't been in touch with him. I don't know that he'd want to hear from me. Um, I think our, and I don't particularly want to hear from him either. I think our relationship is, is, uh, is done. Uh, if he does read it, um, I'm sure he'll, he'll write me a letter and let me know. Uh, after six years of working on this one, do you have another project you're working on? That's a that's a really good question. Uh, I'm uh, I'm considering that very carefully. I'm eager to get into the next thing, but uh, but when you you know you you wake up one morning and your your thirties are, are are gone, you, uh, you you realize okay, I better choose my next one carefully. <laughs> well, we're out of time. We've been speaking with Charles Graber. He is the author of this book, The Good Nurse. Thank you very much. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. We'd like to hear from you. Our email address is pabooks at pcntv.com. Like us on Facebook to learn more about PA Books.